a seashore is a better place than the street because you need a lot of room. At first, it's better to run than it is to walk. You might have to try several times. It takes some skill, but really it's easy to learn. Every young child can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, well, you won't get another chance. Confused? Just a little bit? You you come Christmas Eve to be motivated, and I start with that. The problem is you don't have a context. Let me give you one word, a context clue. The context clue is this, kite. Kite. Let me read it again. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than it is to walk. You might have to try several times. It takes some skill, but really it's easy to learn. Even a child can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, well, you won't get another chance. One context clue. And all of a sudden, a paragraph that made no sense makes much greater sense, right? It's always curious to me that we start our examination of the incarnation with the New Testament. Because the Old Testament exists to give us context clues about the life of Jesus. So today we are going to, tonight we're going to examine the incarnation, but we're going to get a running start at this thing. We're going to start all the way back in Genesis. We're going to go quickly and we're going to see how God builds a case for Christ. You remember Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's all about creation, right? God creates and it was good, it was good, it was good. But then in chapter 3, the serpent comes and he tempts Adam and Eve. And they take of the forbidden fruit and they realize all of a sudden they're naked and they're ashamed. And all of a sudden they don't have enough hands to cover their private parts. And so they do what we all do when faced with our own inadequacy. They tried to compensate. They sewed fig leaves together. They sewed them together. They, they made outfits, the first outfits. They thought that it would compensate, but it didn't compensate. And we know that it didn't compensate. How do we know that it didn't compensate? Well, when God comes into the garden that day, pursuing mankind, mankind doesn't come out and say, Adam and Eve doesn't come out and say, God, notice the fig leaves. They're fantastic. They actually run and hide. They're ashamed. Compensation didn't work. It never does. And God in mercy and grace pursues them. And he asks a couple of rhetorical questions. Did you eat of the forbidden fruit? He knows. And he addresses it first to Adam. And Adam does what we always do when we're caught. It's her fault. And God then turns to Eve, and Eve does what we always do when we're caught. The devil made me do it. And God does something unique. He takes an animal, and for the first time in world history, something dies. The animal dies, and and with the skin of the animal, God compensates for mankind's sin. He covers over it, but it took shed blood. And then God, from there, goes and he starts talking about the consequence of this rebellion. He talks to Adam, he talks to Eve, and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, talking to the serpent, Satan, he talks about the consequence that the serpent will receive. 
God says, and I will put enmity, hatred, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelion. It's, it's the first gospel. Basically, the rest of the Old Testament just gives flesh to this. It's why the Old Testament exists. It's going to give us more and more information about what the gospel will look like, about what Jesus Christ will look like. It's why the Old Testament exists. I think of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, written 700 years before Jesus walked the earth, which says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel. I just want you to think about this because it's an incredible context clue. The virgin will have a son. That doesn't happen very often. That is special, my friends. The virgin will have a son. But he goes on, he says, this virgin's son will be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the virgin will have a son, that's special. He will also be God. That's very special. And then I am reminded of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. It's another context clue. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Context clues. The son will be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Backwaters. Nobody has heard of this place. This, this place is podunk Judah. Small. But God promises in Micah, from you will come the one who will rule Israel. He will be born in Bethlehem. One day he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But Micah 5 verse 2 goes on to say, he will be of ancient times. Literally, from before time times. How fine is that? The one who one day will be born is actually from before time times. I think that means he's everlasting. He will be born, and yet he has always existed. Context clue? So when Jesus arrives on the scene... He came with a whole lot of context clues. He was going to be born of a virgin. His name was Emmanuel. He was God with us. He was going to be born in Bethlehem, and he is everlasting. There aren't many people who fit that description. And yet when he comes, the response is really quite mixed. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. Just listen as I read. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the story of Christmas. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, just like Micah said he would be, during the time of King Herod, 
magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with us. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You see that the response to Jesus, even with all these context clues, is incredibly mixed. The first response that I think we should examine is Herod the Great. Herod was disturbed, and verse 3 says all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. That doesn't really make a lot of sense because Jerusalem was principally Jewish. They should be looking forward to the Messiah. The reason they're disturbed isn't because of Jesus, it's because of Herod. Herod, he's paranoid. He's cruel. He had already killed his wife, Marianne, as well as his two blood sons. And so when Herod gets nervous, everyone in Jerusalem gets nervous. Herod, you see, wanted to maintain his throne at all costs. You've, you've met this guy, haven't you? You've met a person who is hostile toward God because he's trying so hard to maintain his own throne. It, it doesn't have to be someone of royal descent. Our thrones are, are the inane thought that we can actually govern our own lives. That, that's our throne, that, that we are the sovereigns. We're in control. We don't need any authority. We are masters of our own fate. If you fall into that camp, a friendly warning. Herod died bitter and broken. Some people are so bent on controlling their lives that they end up losing their lives. Don't, don't be like Herod. That's dumb. I say that in love. That's dumb. Look at verses 4 through 6. When he, Herod, had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees respectively, he asked them 
where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. The chief priests, Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, their response to the Christ child was a lot more subtle, wasn't it? a lot more subtle than Herod's. It's a little bit confusing, though. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they know the Old Testament. They saw the Magi come into town. These guys are different. Everybody saw the Magi come into town. King Herod saw the Magi come into town. They knew the Magi were in town. They also knew Herod's concerns because all of Jerusalem knew Herod's concerns. They also, by this text, knew where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judah. It says so in the Old Testament. That's what they said. But nobody went. Nobody went to Bethlehem. They're in Jerusalem. Nobody goes to Bethlehem. You might be wondering, how far is it from Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the teachers of the law are, to, to Bethlehem, where the Christ is to be born? How far is it? It's six miles. That's a 10K. We call that a fun run. That's not that hard. And nobody goes to investigate. The religious leaders simply didn't think they needed Jesus. They had religion all buttoned up. They were in control by their religious activity. We need to be careful. Especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time, we need to be really careful. Church is meant to remind us of our need of Jesus. Church is not meant to replace Jesus. If that is where you find yourself, you're a Sadducee or a Pharisee, and you need to repent We desperately need Jesus. Are you still desperate as a Christian? You know, the only people who thought Jesus' birth was a big deal in the book of Matthew were some strange people called Magi. These, these guys are pagan astrologers. They come from a, a religion called Zoroastrianism. They're from Babylon, and they have been traveling, following this star for two years. Can you imagine following a star for two years? I don't even know how to follow a star. I certainly don't think I could follow a star for two years. But they followed for two years. Look at verse 11. On coming to the house, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. Magi didn't visit Jesus in the stable. I love nativity scenes. No disrespect. But they went to his house and they saw a pedion. It's a Greek word for child. 
not infant. Two years they've been following this star. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, that they weren't coming back to give him a report, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. How long have you been following that star? About two years. Well, I'm going to kill all the kids who are two years or under. I think it's pretty neat that while the religious leaders were ambivalent to Jesus, some crazy cats from Babylon who believed in Zoroastrianism right up to that point spend two years following Jesus, and when they find the Christ child in his house, they are overjoyed, they bow down, and they worship. I think that's what Christmas is about. Being overjoyed that they have found the Christ, that he came near and they found him. And worshiping, giving gifts, everything that we have is unto Jesus. I think those magi, they were onto something. I really do. And you know what? I'm not alone. We call them the wise men after all. And that, that's good stuff. I'd love to be remembered as the wise man. And history has proven that they were indeed wise, right? Because Jesus has changed the world. If you don't believe it, consider these things. Literacy is because of Christianity. I know, I know you're probably thinking, well, that's crazy. Where the gospel hasn't gone, people don't read. It's as simple as that. You can look all over the world, go, where has the gospel gone? Those people read. And the places the gospel has not gone, those people do not read. Literacy is because of Christianity. Jesus' teaching on mercy brought the world hospice, hospital, the Red Cross, and even your neighborhood YMCA. It's because of Jesus' teaching on mercy. More books have been written about, more songs sung about, more paintings painted about Jesus than any other person in world history. It's a matter of fact. All of human history rotates on his birthday. Every other event in world history is set in place relative to the life of Jesus. I'm telling you, the Magi, they were on to something. Roughly two billion people tonight and tomorrow are celebrating Jesus' birthday. The Magi were on to something. One more thing the Magi nailed. And one more thing I'd like to challenge you to consider as you go to your dinners and your parties and, and as you celebrate the birth of Jesus tomorrow. I think the, the Magi got this right. They brought gold. Gold is the gift you give to a king. They brought incense. That's the gift you would give a priest. A priest needs incense. They give gifts for a king, gifts to a priest. 
And then they give myrrh. Myrrh is kind of weird for us. We, we don't know much about myrrh. Myrrh in those days was used as an embalming fluid. Let me tell you straight up, that's a really weird gift for a two-year-old on his birthday. Okay, that, don't go that route. But that's what they give. They give a gift that's appropriate for a priest. They give a gift that's appropriate for a king. And they give a gift that's appropriate for someone who's going to die. Magi were on to something. They, they knew enough to follow a star for two years. Wise men. They also knew that Jesus' kingdom and his priesthood would ultimately hinge on his death and his resurrection. Consider that this Christmas. Let's pray together. Merciful God, what joy to know your son Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he took off the robes of glory that he wore in heaven and he put on the robes of humanity and he came to this world to be ignored, forsaken, ultimately beaten and crucified. Father, thank you that it was all that we might be saved. Lord, in response, we worship you. God, for all that is fun about Christmas, I pray that our greatest joy is knowing that you pursued us as we ran from you. And that you made a way for us that our sins would be covered by the shed blood of another. Oh God, Christmas is special. I pray that we would know that it is special for all the right reasons and none of the wrong reasons. I pray that we would worship you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.